Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. All right. This is the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, we're talking Surrey. about Surrey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's been interesting to follow this all year because what we've seen again and again is the new Democrats reluctantly stepping in and trying to do something that will bring this battle over policing services to an end. And every time they do it, they explain to, you know, the press gallery, the news media, okay, well, like this is it, right? It's, it's over, it's done, and they've got no way out after this. And every single time, Mayor Brenda Locke comes back and says, it's not done yet. We're not giving up. We're not backing down. And it happened again yesterday. Yeah. And this time they're expanding their court challenge, which, I mean, okay, they can do that. That doesn't mean the court's going to rule in their favor. No, it doesn't. But it does mean it's going to string it out. I mean, there, there are really four things that Locke said yesterday. I mean, the first, the big one is we're not giving up. We're not backing down. Second thing is they're, they're going to expand their court case. Now, you're right, Simi, court cases take a while. The balance of constitutional power in this country is with a province. Municipalities are creations of provinces. At the end of the day, the province can make them do things. So the court case doesn't look great. Uh, second thing she said is, we're not going to pass this budget, you know. The government put in an administrator there, and he can do whatever he wants. But basically, she says the council isn't obliged to approve that budget, which is true. But there's an escape hatch on that one. If the council won't approve the budget for policing services, the provincial director of policing services can step in. And that is not hypothetical. Simi, you remember they did it in Vancouver last year. That's right. The provincial director of policing service stepped in and said, no, you're going to have to put more money. And they did. So that's not a great course of action. The real um, fruit, possibly fruitful course for Locke is to continue to politicize this. Now, I think she took a cheap shot at the Surrey police force by calling it the NDP police force yesterday. I think that you didn't need to do that. Another example of how Locke overplays her hand. But the other thing she indicated does potentially fruitful is where she says, look, if all this goes ahead and all of this ends up with more expensive policing services in Surrey, as it probably will, don't point your fingers at me and my counsel. This is now the NDP's budget and the NDP's tax bill, and she's going to make that clear to the local voters. And on that one, Simi, I have to say um, the constitutional uh, issues around this, uh, the back and forth about who was straighter with the voters, I think all of this politically, Locke may have a point. If you're living in Surrey and you get a tax notice for a big increase in your taxes because of policing services, um, she's going to be able to say, that's not my tax bill. That's Mike Farnworth's tax bill. What's so frustrating about this, Vaughn, is that this mayor and the previous mayor, too, were not completely forthcoming about costs, about everything here. So I don't think Surrey taxpayers know 
exactly That's at true. any point about what this was going to cost them. And now the provincial government is going to have that hung around their necks like an albatross, even though it's really previous councils that have not been fully forthcoming on these numbers. Well, there's some truth to that. But I think you'd also have to say if you go back over the collected statements of Mike Farnworth on this issue, the provincial government's been all over the map on this as well. You know, they tried to avoid, they've tried to avoid, they've tried to put off, they've tried to deflect. Uh, There's plenty of blame to go around here. You know, I think the other thing that's important to say about this, you know, is... is, uh, Locke says you're trampling democracy and the New Democrats are saying, oh, come on, she barely won the election. Well, you know, they've they've formed government with fewer votes than the opposition twice. So they're not. Here's the thing. Um, The constitutional power here, I think, at the end of the day, it will be recognized by the courts that the province has the power to do this. But when the province, when a government has the power to do something because they've got a huge majority in the House, because not a peep of criticism ever comes from a new Democrat over the handling of this, because their own members in Surrey just want it to go away. When you have the power to do it, to bring down the hammer, it isn't always the wisest course of action. A public prefers its levels of government to work stuff out and get together and compromise. And I think the NDP have now moved to, we've got the power, we're going to do it, get it over with and get on with it. And, you know, I think you go, yeah, well, uh, you've got the votes, but uh, may you be sowing some political retribution that could come back and haunt the NDP in Surrey, in next year's provincial election. I would imagine the opposition would have a lot to say about that. I know that Kevin Falcon's been focusing a lot of events in Surrey lately. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> I think the, the party formerly known as the BC Liberals can be accused of ducking this issue as well. But, you know, the opposition can just sit on its hands when the government is screwing up something and you know, wait for the retribution down the road. But, you know, I don't think, I don't think the people of Surrey have been, I agree with you, Simi, they were not well served by the previous mayor. They aren't well served by the current one. I don't think they're well served by the NDP members from Surrey in this government. Mm -hmm. I mean, are they all really sure behind closed doors that this is the right way to go? Or are they just saying to Farnworth, use your powers, bring down the hammer, make it go away, because we don't want to have to deal with this politically anymore. Vaughn, can you explain to me what is going on with this Victoria councillor? Well, councillor Susan Kim signed a petition. Um, It's ceasefire connected, but in particular, the petition referred to unverified accounts of sexual violence by Hamas in the October the 7th attack. And that has led to a lot of outrage and and warranted in my view. I mean, one of the longest struggles, I think, of women particularly to get sexual violence taken seriously has been that the first thing you do is it is take the word of the women. It doesn't mean that that's how it will come out at the end, but I believe the women is the line. And the 
The pushback on this counselor, Susan Kim, has been, you're making an exception when the accused is Hamas? Is that really what you want to do? And she didn't help matters by not making herself available at all to comment on this. And she finally put out, I think, a weaseling statement yesterday that apparently tried to blame the news media for the way this was reported. Uh, I give credit to... British Columbia's municipal affairs minister, Ann Kang, who came right out and said it. This isn't how you deal with sexual violence and rape. And Kim should apologize. At the absolute minimum, that's what she should do. Opposition leader Kevin Falcon said she should resign. And there's a petition with 8,000 signatures on it calling for her to do that. But you know, this is, uh, man, I, I, you'd think there are some issues that have been sorted out fairly clearly in our time, Simi, and that is treating women who make these accusations with respect. Yeah. And uh, to come out and say, well, you know, it's Moss, so I, I need more evidence. Well, you know, uh, it makes you sound like uh, the way police forces used to respond to this stuff back in the 1950s. I, 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 I'm surprised. Uh, the only thing I'll say about Kim is she is a new member of council. Um, she didn't really get any help from the mayor, Marianne Alto, who just said, I don't comment on what councillors say. Well, really, I think in this case, the mayor could have helped her a lot by saying, look, uh, start with an apology and work from there. But also, the, the well, you mentioned the statement that Susan Kim put out there, blaming the news media for not checking that yeah. she didn't draft the petition she signed. It was so incredibly weak because I thought, oh, do you just put your name to things that you didn't actually read? Like, yeah. So you just do you not understand how this works? Yeah. As I said, a, a new member of council, inexperienced, not been there before, could have handled this with an appropriate apology. She did kind of say, well, I'll try to be careful in the future with this kind of thing. But uh, seriously, it, it's uh, she's made things much, much worse by not doing what uh, a more experienced politician would have done off right. the top is say, hey, I screwed up here. I shouldn't have signed this thing. I don't agree with that. And uh, I promised to do better. Instead, um, as I said, it's kind of weaseling. Uh, she refused to deal with it altogether at first. And then she, you know, came out, as I said, with a statement that put the blame elsewhere. She still hasn't apologized. It's, to me, uh, an example of, a okay, an inexperienced politician who could use some help on this, but all she needs to do is phone up Ann Kang, the municipal affairs minister, who got it right away and say, um, can you help me draft an apology? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she needs help clearly understanding this issue. It's too um, bad. It's it is too bad. bad. A new, a new counselor, you know, I go, well, all right, you get to make one big mistake and it's how you deal with it that really the voters look at. And so far, her dealing with it has made the matter much, much worse. It certainly has. I wanted to ask you as well about your trip to Seattle, because you said you were there on the weekend, and I'm curious about how you found it. It's the first time I've been to Seattle since before the pandemic. I'm very fond of the city, and I went with some trepidation because I follow the, particularly the Seattle Times' coverage of how the city has fared. 
so as I said, some trepidation, but it is a beautiful weekend. We walked everywhere from the float plane, downtown, bike market, up to Capitol Hill. I would say that the city is looking a little beaten up. There's a lot of storefronts that are boarded up. The big Starbucks that was at the Central Square in town is gone. Starbucks couldn't protect its staff. Uh, security everywhere, so you can see them struggling. And Capitol Hill, which used to be one of my favorite neighborhoods, that's where the real standoff over Black Lives Matter happened. They had to vacate the police station up there. Capitol Hill is looking really badly. The, the businesses up there have clearly suffered a lot of storefronts. A couple of political things that I noticed when I was there, uh, the Seattle Times editorial board, reflecting on the recent civic elections in Seattle, said the moderates took control of council from the progressive left. They think that's encouraging for the future. Clearly, the voters want a better balance. The business community in Seattle is saying something interesting. They have a very high vacancy rate downtown, but they think the city is going to recover, and I hope they're right. And I can tell you, I went through Pike Market, Simi, the fish show is still on. So, you know, people go to Seattle just for that. It's worth seeing. And Pike Market is looking really up. And they got rid of that ghastly freeway uh, from the waterfront. So the waterfront's starting to look pretty good too. So very fond of Seattle. I'll say a little bit of trepidation. It's looking a little beaten up, but encouraging for the future. Next, I'm going to take a look at Portland. Oh, boy. Okay. I can't wait to hear about that one. Hey, listen, before I let you go, I want to ask you, you heard Rolling Stones are coming to town. Big deal. Yeah, fantastic. Have you you seen the Rolling Stones? You must have. (laughs) I'm looking it up. I looked it up almost 50 years ago, right? And even then, people were saying, oh, they're not as good as they used to be, you know. (laughs) (laughs) July 18th, 1975 in Seattle. They were fantastic. They opened with honky-tonk women. I'd say the one thing I would miss from going to see them now is honky-tonk women has got one of the great drum introductions of all time, Charlie Watts. I'm sorry Charlie isn't around anymore. But Jagger's still here. And for people making fun of Jagger being 80 years old, the one detail that's very important, Mick Jagger's father was a gym teacher, and he lived to be 92. Oh, boy. So do not assume that this is the last Stones tour. And as we know, (laughs) Keith Richards is indestructible. Hey, would you go to this one? Uh, I'd be sort of tempted. It's it's a long time since I've seen them for various reasons, but... uh, I think people should go. Uh, they 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 give great shows. They are incredible, and you can argue about whether or not they're what they used to call themselves the greatest rock and roll band in the world. But they're amazing survivors. They certainly are, Vaughn. Thank you for that. Bye bye. That's Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun.